You're listening to Hear Kōrero, a community research podcast. Welcome to our second podcast series, Hoki Whakamuri Haere Whakamua, Thinking Back, Going Forward, our webinars and audio. Hear brave kōrero on kaupapa, like valuing worldviews and Indigenous research, the power of refugee research, supporting New Zealand-born Pacific youth and white fragility. This webinar, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, was hosted by Community Research in December 2019 and highlights the mahi of Dr. Robin D'Angelo. This webinar aims to increase understanding of how individuals can engage and partner more effectively, especially in cross-cultural dialogue, anti-racist action and change. It offers a great opportunity to also consider unconscious cultural bias. Thank you so much. And I also want to take a moment to acknowledge uh, the ancestors, uh, my ancestors, both those before my time, those in my life today, and those to come in the future. Uh, and also, I am speaking from the ancestral territories of indigenous peoples of Turtle Island in Seattle, Washington, and that is the ancestral territories of the Duwamish. And in the context of the U.S., the Duwamish have continued up until this last year to be denied federal recognition. So I live on the ancestral territories of a group of indigenous peoples for whom uh, the United States government refuses acknowledgement. And that's, that's really critical, of course, because that is connected to sovereignty, to treaty rights, and to access to resources. So I'm gonna start with a quote by Ijeoma Oluo, who is local to Seattle where I live. She's a young black woman, and by the way, uh, get your hands on everything Ijeoma Oluo writes. She has a fantastic book called, So You Wanna Talk About Race. And so she says, I don't want you to understand me better. I want you to understand yourselves. Your survival has never depended on your knowledge of white culture. In fact, it's required your ignorance. And I start with this quote because it helps frame the particular focus that I will be taking in this talk. So let me position myself. I am white. And part of being white is I was not raised to see myself in racial terms. I certainly understood that somebody had race, but not really me. And I wasn't raised to see my race as significant to anything you could know about me. I was raised to expect that if we we're gonna talk about race, we'd be talking about uh, Kim's race, right? Not mine. And I didn't see it as relevant to the way I saw the world, the way I removed, moved through the world or how the world responded back to me. I'm very, very clear today after 20 plus years of study, struggle, research, mistake making, relationship building, and day in and day out talking to white people about race, I'm really clear that I'm white. That I have a white worldview, a white frame of reference, and a white experience. And that, that is not a universal human experience, but it is a most particularly white experience in societies that are deeply separate and unequal by race. And so while I'm always coming from that position, I wanna be very explicit about it uh, today and why I'm going to focus on that particular piece of this uh, enduring dilemma called racism, right? Uh, there are myriad roads in, and all of them are critical, right? But typically, when we 
have any kind of professional development or education or seminar on race or racism, we tend to study them. We tend to learn about their histories and their struggles, their triumphs, their heroes, their heroines. What do we need to know when we're working with them or studying them? And so consistently left off the table is the question of struggles in relation to whom? Triumphs in relation to whom or what? Who am I as I interact across this difference? So dominant culture or whiteness is, is consistently left unaddressed. And so it is never, this is never the voice, the only voice that you should hear. I would, I would never argue that you should only listen to white people um, by any means, but that it is a piece of the puzzle that we need to engage, to, to engage with. What I'm hoping is useful about that particular focus for the Black, Indigenous, and people of color listening to this talk is that in my short time with you today, I'm going to name and admit to things that white people will rarely ever name or admit to. And uh, if that is useful for the gaslighting, if that is useful to affirm an experience that we so often deny, uh, then, then I hope that I can contribute that. Uh, I also wanna acknowledge the master's tools dilemma in that in my focus on whiteness and white people's place in racism, I am of course centering white people. And Audre Lorde has a beautiful quote uh, about the master's house, right? And she asks, how do you dismantle the master's house when you only have the master's tools? So in other words, how do we challenge racism from within a system of racism? So I want to be clear that I, I recognize that, that this focus will center whiteness, but I also believe that it interrupts whiteness because one of the ways that whiteness stays centered is to never be named or marked, right? To just be the assumed default for, for human and everyone else a particular kind of human. All right, so what are some of the challenges of educating white people about racism? I want to give you a great example. Uh, I was recently going to give a similar talk uh, to a large tech company, and before the um, organization would agree to have me come, the legal department wanted to see my slides. Uh, and they came back to me, and they only had one issue with all of the slides in my deck, and that was this particular slide you see right now. And they actually came back to me and said, could you take the word white off the slide? Just, just hold that for a minute, right? Let, let's not name white people. Let's not proceed as if being white has any meaning. Of course, my response was, you really should have vetted me before you called. Uh, no, this is exactly and specifically what I'm speaking to. And, and before I go any further, I think one of the challenges of trying to educate white people outside the US for me as an American or North American is that everywhere I go, white people outside the US say to me, uh, well, you're an American and you don't understand what it's like here. In fact, racism is an American problem. We don't have those issues here. And in those exact same places, people of color pull me aside and say, oh my God, please come here and educate these white people because everything you're talking about is exactly what we experience here. So on the one hand, the dynamics I'm talking about are universal because, because 
this construct is something that has been exported globally and circulates globally. So what I would offer to the white people listening is in those places where it doesn't quite translate, that it is on you to get that skin in the game and make those translations. Ask yourself, okay, what is that dynamic look like in my context, rather than to dismiss all of it because it isn't exactly lined up. So one of the first challenges about trying to educate white people on racism is that I've never actually met a white person who didn't have an opinion on racism. And I'm quite sure that uh, all of the white people listening to me right now have opinions on this topic, and that doesn't make your opinion informed. And I am going to uh, offer that if you are white and you have not devoted years of sustained steady struggle and focus on arguably the most complex nuanced social dilemma of the last several hundred years i'm going to offer that your opinion is necessarily superficial and uninformed and i'm going to offer that because you can get through graduate school in virtually any country and never discuss systemic racism, right? Uh, you can be seen as qualified to lead anything, uh, to study anything, to teach anything with no ability whatsoever to engage with any criticality or nuance in the topic of systemic racism. So the first challenge for those of us who are white is humility, please, humility, humility. Uh, you cannot and do not know all you need to know. The second challenge is, is if I do a good job in my short time in front of you today, this is not going to be a comfortable talk for white people. Uh, the status quo of your society, of my society, is racism, right? That is the status quo. It is not an aberration. It is not a fluke. Uh, it is circulating 24-7, 365. And I move through societies such as these as a white person in racial comfort. I just want to repeat that. I move through racist societies in racial comfort as a white person. And so my goal is not to reinforce white comfort. It is to unsettle it because we will not get where we need to go from a place of white comfort. The key is what you will do with those moments if I manage to stimulate them for you. Uh, and I hope you will use them as a way in, as a way, uh, a relatively rare moment of self-reflection. Why? does this unsettle me so much? Why am I beginning to feel defensive or angry? What can that help reveal about the way that I've made sense of this? And whether we can consciously articulate it to ourselves or not, uh, there are two places where white people begin to get uncomfortable whenever I give a, a presentation. And one is how often I'm gonna say the word white. Uh, uh, we're not used to being seen racially or having people proceed as if that has meaning. And the second place is that I am not gonna grant any white person any individuality in this talk for the next hour. I'm going to generalize about white people for an entire hour and all uh, of the white people listening are going to be just fine. Uh, yes, we are unique individuals. We are also members of a social group. By virtue of our membership in this social group, we could and we can literally predict whether we were going to survive our births. We can predict how long we're going to live because we are a member of this social group. 
there is a shared collective experience to being white and we have to be willing to grapple with that shared experience and use what we see as unique about ourselves to ask how that unique thing set us up into the construct, but not how it exempted us. And finally, we don't tend to understand the systemic dimensions of racism. So that is where we're going to start. So everybody has prejudice. Uh, the research in implicit bias is very clear here. And I know that a lot of people listening may be involved in education efforts for uh, looking at implicit bias, and that's great. Um, as long as you also add what happens when one group's collective bias is backed with legal authority and institutional control. So while everyone has socially learned prejudices, prejudgments about social others, systemic racism occurs when a group's collective racial prejudice is backed with legal authority and institutional control. That transforms it into a far-reaching system and it becomes embedded in all aspects of the society. It is circulating 365 days, 24 hours a day. And it is also embedded in cultural definitions of what's even normal, real, correct, beautiful, and valuable. So I'm going to use an example. Uh, here's a couple of examples. Parliament in, the, uh, in New Zealand is 70% white, right? Just by virtue of that homogeneity alone, you're going to get uh, bias, implicit uh, and often unaware bias, embedded into all of the policies and practices. Here's another example uh, of the 100 top grossing films of all time across the world, disseminated from the US, but consumed worldwide. And everywhere I go outside the US, I look to see what's playing at the movies. And almost all of uh, the movies are directed. They're from the US, from Americans. And of those, 99 were directed by men and 95 of them white. And white men in the, in the U.S. compromise 31% of the population. So this is not about numbers, this is about power. And another dimension of systemic power is the ability to disseminate your worldview to everyone. To shape how everyone sees themselves, sees others, and sees oneself in relationship to others. To be able to represent and tell the story of the racial other when you are not in relationship to the racial other. And to do that and present that as simply an objective, universal human view or story. So that Mike Lee is a film director who makes films about the human condition, and Spike Lee is a black film director who makes films about the black experience. So what is the mainstream definition of a racist? Well, the mainstream definition of what it means to be racist is an individual who consciously does not like people based on race and is intentionally mean to them. So individual, conscious, malintent across race. And I don't think you could have come up with a more effective way to protect the system of racism than this definition. Because this definition exempts virtually everyone from the system that we are in. 
It makes it virtually impossible to talk to the average white person about an inevitable racist worldview that we get simply by swimming in water in which racism is infused. And I think that this is the root of almost all white defensiveness on this topic. Because if this is my definition of what it means to be racist and you suggest uh, that I've said or done something racially hurtful, much less that just by virtue of being a white person in a society in which uh, systemic racism is embedded. I'm going to hear you saying that I am a morally bad person, and now I'm going to need to defend my moral character. And I think we, we have all seen that kind of defensiveness that gets surfaced based on this definition. So this sets up what I call the binary, that it's just an either or proposition, right? So if you're racist, you're bad, ignorant, bigoted, prejudiced, mean-spirited, old, uh, and American. Uh, and if you're not racist, you're good. And so you're educated, progressive, open-minded, well-intended, young, and uh, Canadian, British, European, Australian, New Zealand, anything but American. Uh, we really just have to get rid of this idea that it could ever be either or and just understand that it is an inevitable result of being born into, being raised and living in societies in which systemic racism is embedded. And it's much more useful to think of it as a continuum that I am on and will be on across my lifetime. That changes my question from if I've been shaped by this system to how have I been shaped and how is it manifesting in my life? On a continuum, I can ask, in this moment, how am I doing? Am I behaving in more or less racist ways rather than am I or am I not? So again, it is a system, not an event. And I, this is such a critical foundational understanding. And if we don't have this understanding, really there's not much else we're gonna be able to understand. Uh, about the anti-racist movement. I'm gonna really bring this home by using an example in the New Zealand context of what happens when one group's collective racial bias is backed by legal authority and institutional control. And I'm gonna use it with the example of state-sanctioned discrimination against indigenous people in the New Zealand context. It begins with invasion, rape, brutality, and it carries on all the way into the present. And if we come into employment discrimination, read down a little past halfway through at employment discrimination, and we are now in 2019 with copious empirical evidence. Employment discrimination, educational discrimination, biased policing, mass incarceration, children forcibly taken from parents, disproportionate poverty and life expectancy outcomes, unaddressed generational family trauma, victim blaming, biased media, cultural appropriation, historical omissions, and so on. It is a system, not an, just an event. It is a system that we are in. And nothing could and nothing did exempt any person in this system from being impacted by the forces of the system. And smiling as a white person, as I pass by indigenous peoples, going to lunch on, a, on occasion with an indigenous coworker does not interrupt this system. And indigenous people have not, are not, and have never been in the position to do this. <laughs> Uh, to white people. 
white people have always been and continue to be in the position, in this case, in the New Zealand context, to do this to indigenous peoples. There is no such thing as reverse racism. I'm gonna just hold that point. Everyone has bias. Indigenous peoples can be biased against me as a white person without even knowing me, and that wouldn't be nice. But indigenous people cannot do this to my entire group. We have to reserve the term racism to acknowledge the profundity of impact when one group's bias is backed with legal authority and institutional control. At the same time, I want to use this quote, structures are not alien to the actors who produce, reproduce, and transform them. So while individuals are not systems, systems are made up of individuals. So there's always a relationship between me and the institutions in which I am embedded. So given this, uh, and given that most white people see racism as just a simple formula of nice pe people versus mean people, um, this causes us to be, as I've made a case for, rather superficial on the topic. And my area of um, scholarship is critical discourse analysis, and that is the study of language and how language uh, reproduces inequality, or at least in the uh, area that I study it. And in listening to the kinds of evidence that white people will give for why they are free of all racial bias, of all racism, I got that image that I just showed you of a dock or a pier. And what that, or I think you might call it a jetty. And what that signifies is how surface or superficial this evidence is, this, the narratives that white people use to credential ourselves as free of racial bias. Uh, it signifies one, how surface this evidence is, but also if you look at a dock from up above, it looks like it's just floating on the water. But of course it isn't just floating on the water. A dock or jetty is resting on a structure that is immersed under the water. Right? It is resting on pillars embedded in that ocean floor that prop it up and hold it up. And everything that I'm doing in my work is to try to get us off the top, off that superficial level of thin evidence and credentialing and underneath to the structures. Because despite all that evidence that white people will give for why they are free of racism, systemic racism endures. Right? It is enduring. It is not ch changing in any significant way. And by many measures, our outcomes are uh, getting worse, not better. So let's look at some of this evidence. And by the way, I call these uh, white progressive narratives <laughs> uh, because they are really particular to white people who see ourselves as progressive and outside of racism. And I actually think uh, white progressives uh, do the most daily damage to peoples of color. And I, I will unpack that as we go along. So probably the number one of, I see that I see two basic themes in this evidence or in this, uh, the credentials that white people will give uh, for their lack of racism. Color deny and color celebrate. So probably the number one of the color deny set is some version of I was taught to treat everyone the same. I don't see color, right? Or if I see it, it has no meaning. And I'm going to imagine everyone listening has heard some version of this one. And if we're white and we're being honest, 
we've probably said some version of this one. So first of all, absolutely no one was taught to treat everyone the same. You could be told to do it, you could be lectured to do it, you can't actually do it, you don't do it. Uh, human beings are not objective. And so when I hear this from a white person, what I'm thinking is, oh, this person doesn't understand basic socialization. This person doesn't understand culture, and this person is not particularly aware. Uh, and I just need to give a heads up to white people that are listening. When people of color, when black or indigenous uh, people of color hear us say this, they're generally not thinking, all right, I am talking to a woke white person right now. Generally, some version of eye rolling is going on. It just simply is not doing what we think it's doing. And Erin um, Trent Johnson is a black woman I often co-lead with. And she says, when I hear this from a white person, what I'm thinking is this is a dangerous white person. This is a white person who is going to deny my reality. It's just simply not true, and it's not an effective form of credentialing, and the research and implicit bias is very, very clear on this point. So now we move into the uh, color celebrate forms of evidence, right? I work in a very diverse environment. I have people of color in my family. Me, I'm not racist. I'm from New York or Canada or New Zealand or anywhere, I suppose. Uh, I've heard it, uh, I'm from Boston, I'm from uh, Germany, right? Some kind of regional evidence uh, as if racism, that there are whole swaths of uh, the world in which racism cannot exist. Uh, so I'm gonna imagine that everyone listening has heard some version of these last three here. Um, and these are claims of proximity. And I would ask you to, to notice how often uh, white people use a proximity as our evidence that we are free of racism. And so let's do a little discourse analysis right now uh, on proximity forms of credentialing because they're so ubiquitous. If my evidence that I am free of racism is that I have proximity to, to people of color, then in order for that to be good evidence, it must distinguish me from someone who can't tolerate proximity to people of color, right? So apparently a racist can't tolerate proximity to people of color. Otherwise, my claiming to be able to not only tolerate, but, but celebrate it uh, would not be good evidence. I'm pretty confident that right here we're seeing that that's pretty thin evidence and you're going to be a little bit more direct. It's kind of absurd and uh, evidence, right? Because even avowed racists can, can and do tolerate proximity to people of color, okay? And even people in intimate personal relationships uh, across race can and do perpetrate racial harm. Right. I have many people of color in my life at this point, uh, and I do, on occasion, uh, reveal that I've been socialized into a racist worldview, and I do, on occasion, say and do things that are hurtful to them. Right. I'm not. I'm not free of my racist conditioning. I have. I wouldn't. I don't even want to say the word overcome, but I certainly do much less harm as a result of engaging in this work. But I don't think in my lifetime I could ever be free of all of it. This 
romantic projection towards children that children today are you know so much more open the research research is really clear on this point is that children who grow up in uh, white settler colonial contexts learn at a very very early age that it is better to be white by age three to four most children have absorbed that message let me give you a couple of examples <laughs> No child, no little girl in this case, misses the message that it's better to be white. Um, these are not uh, isolated messages. They circulate constantly. Uh, this was uh, from 2015's Miss Teen USA. Those are the top five runners up. Uh, and yes, they really are five different girls. Here are your 2019 Miss Teen New Zealand and Miss Teen Supermodel New Zealand. You know, my point here again is that all children who grow up learn very early that whiteness is the ideal standard for beauty and humanity. Uh, this is an image back from the 20, uh, 2016 in the US uh, Miss Teen USA. And what I, what I want to point out here is that, yes, there was one black girl in this group. Uh, and um, because I know my people, I am confident that for all these white girls, <laughs> that one black girl was their evidence for why they're not racist. Just notice how often we will use the presence of one or two uh, people of color as our evidence that we could not be racist. Now, what that isolated black woman's experience was, uh, it's a whole nother story. What I wanna do is move these white girls way past this idea that uh, I was friendly to the black girl, therefore I'm free of racism, and move them over to a very different set of questions, which is what is going on here? What was happening that I may not have noticed? How does this keep getting reproduced? Um, how have I been shaped by it? And what role will I uh, and do I play in reproducing it moving forward if I can't see it or understand it? I was in the Peace Corps. I'm a minority myself. I was on a mission in Africa. I've been doing this for years. I tutored on the reservation. I speak several languages. I have traveled extensively. These are all the claims that white progressives make uh, for our lack of racism. And I'm not sure if this one is relevant in New Zealand context, but certainly uh, for Americans who may be watching, we don't like how white our neighborhood is, but we had to move here for the schools. So there's a question that has never failed me in my efforts to unpack, okay, well then how do we keep getting racially inequitable outcomes if this is all that's happening? And that question isn't, is this true or is this false? Is any of the evidence true or false, right or wrong, good or bad? We're not gonna get anywhere uh, with a question like that. The question that has never failed me is, how does this evidence function? What happens in the conversation when racism comes up, when there is a charge that racism is at play in the way that we are approaching or going about something, and a white person responds with this evidence. And when we ask that question, I think we can see that all of it exempts the person from any further engagement. All of it takes racism off the table. Nothing to see here, folks, let's move on. And in doing that, all of that evidence actually protects the racist status quo and the white position within it. 
this is evidence that functions to exempt, protect systemic racism. And that does not have to be your intention, right? It has nothing to do with intentions. That is the impact uh, of those narratives. So we really have to get under the surface and ask ourselves a question that I think white people rarely ever ask ourselves. What am I saying? What, where does my confidence that it isn't me coming from? And have I ever really interrogated that? Uh, do I know from people of color's experience uh, how well I'm doing? What accountability am I engaged in? So I wanna offer a question. Two questions uh, for, for people listening. For, for uh, white people, the question I want you to sit with is how do you credential yourself on conversations on race? I really never met a white person who doesn't do it. I do it. I try not to do it, but on occasion I catch myself <laughs> credentialing myself. Uh, so how do I do it and how might it actually be impacting the conversation. And if you are a black, black, indigenous, or a person of color, how have you noticed white people credentialing themselves? And how does it impact the conversation for you? D does it work? Is it effective? So this is a question I've been asking white people for 20 years. What are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life? And for 20 years, I've seen a consistent pattern. And that is this is a really uncomfortable question for most white people to be asked. And most of us cannot answer this question with any depth uh, at all. And I want to propose that our inability to answer this question, right? Never mind studying other people, right? Uh, my inability to actually understand my own race uh, racial socialization and how it shapes being. The collective impact of that uh, is creating a hostile environment for indigenous peoples and peoples of color who are living and working in primarily white space. Because again, if I can't tell you what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means not to be white. I'm going to have no critical thinking on this topic. I'm going to have no skills to navigate this conversation. And I'm going to have no emotional capacity to withstand the discomfort of this conversation. And that means that indigenous peoples, people of color, black people working and living uh, in primarily white space cannot be their authentic selves cannot actually talk to us about what they're experiencing because we can't handle that conversation. We can't hold the conversation. And typically what happens is things get worse, not better for that person. And so the choice most often is to just endure the daily indignities and slights rather than risk receiving more of them through the defensiveness and denial that's probably going to ensue if any of this is raised or challenged. And the other really common pattern when I ask white people this question, besides a discomfort and an inability to think critically about it, is how often we organize our answers around people of color. So when you ask people, what are some of the ways you're, or white people, what are some of the ways uh, your race has shaped your life? We will begin to tell you a story about an early relationship 
or you know an incident or a moment we will start to talk about people of color and that's really useful to pay attention to because it reveals how unracialized our own identities are and that if we're not talking about people of color uh, or, they're, or they're not present we find it very difficult to think about our own selves in racial terms that most white people see white space as unracialized space I can assure you that white space is highly racialized. It is teeming with race. It is not a fluke. It is not an accident. It is a result of decades of policies and practices. And absolutely, it's experienced as racialized space for uh, people of color in that space. We have to start looking at race uh, as being white as a race, quite, quite frankly, and quite simply, if you will. What do I think these pillars are that are supporting or propping up this system? Why, despite all of the claims that so many white people make, that we are outside of any of this, why do we keep getting the outcomes that we're getting? Well, I think that these are the fundamental props. First thing is the good-bad binary, this idea that only mean people who, mean, who intend to hurt others could do so across race, which beautifully exempts almost all white people deep implicit bias that, that everyone has. And of course, what happens when ours is backed with power, with the control of the institution so that we can infuse that bias across the entire society. Individualism, that precious ideology for white people that allows every one of us to exempt ourselves. And I imagine even white people listening right now are taking umbrage at my generalization and thinking about all the ways that are exempting them from what I'm saying. And then at the same time, universalism, this idea that we don't speak or proceed from any particular position, just kind of a universal objective place. This is why we can read researchers who are just telling you about the world and then we'll always mark, well, this is a Maori researcher talking about the Maori perspective on this. And notice that universalism, individualism are a little bit opposite, uh, but this does not have to be rational. This just has to work to get racism off the table and protect the status quo. So we will take up whatever narrative in whatever moment works to do that, right? I've tried to make a case for internalized superiority in a very short period of time. Uh, so I would, uh, if I haven't managed to make that case, I would uh, urge you to read um, my books and articles where I have more space to do that. Uh, but let me just say, um, no white person grows up not knowing it's better to be white. Uh, and on some level with an investment in the status quo, the racist status quo, because it serves us, it's comfortable for us. And I am not saying that white people don't face barriers or um, suffer. We do not face that barrier. And not facing that barrier absolutely helps us uh, navigate the barriers that we do face. I, I grew up female. Right? I'm a cisgender female, but I grew up uh, you know, in a patriarchal society uh, and I experienced sexism and I grew up in poverty. So I experienced classism, but being white absolutely helps me navigate sexism and classism, right? There's no way I can talk about being a woman or growing up in poverty without also talking about being a white woman 
or a white person who grew up in poverty because there is no way my experience would have been the same had I not been white. And then the power of segregation to keep all of this in place and certainly the society at large uh, being segregated so that we don't even know what other people's realities are uh, and we are not uh, accountable to them. All right, so all of this sets us up to be not only superficial uh, around this topic, but also to be highly defensive uh, at any suggestion uh, that we may not be as free of racial bias as we think that we are. And so there's a, there's a question I often ask uh, people of color who are um, in my sessions, which is, how often have you attempted to give feedback to a white person on our inevitable and often unaware racist conditioning assumptions uh, and patterns of behavior and had that go well for you? How often have you tried to give a white person feedback on how their racism is manifesting and had that go well for you? And I think even us white people know the answer to that question. The most common response I get from people of color is never have I been able to do that and have it go well. And second most common response is rarely have I ever been able to do that. Right? So what is it that usually happens? This, this is what happens for people of color who try to challenge white people on this. We, we deny it, we argue, we withdraw, uh, poor white women will burst into tears and begin to cry and now we're the victims. You've unfairly hurt my feelings by suggesting that I could be complicit with this system. We'll explain and explain and explain and explain because you must have misunderstood because you had to have misunderstood if you think I could be racist because I can't be racist. Right? We'll claim that we're the ones being attacked. We'll focus on our intentions, but I didn't mean to, and so that should be all that counts. Uh, we'll feel so guilty and seek you to forgive us, you know, etc. And this is what I call white fragility. The inability to tolerate the racial stress of a challenge to our positions, our perspectives, you know, because we really haven't had to build our stamina uh, for the discomfort of a challenge, right? And I'm often asked, what, what, what causes white fragility? And it's no one single thing. It's all of the things that I have tried to lay out coming together. And so while we're very fragile in the sense that it takes virtually very little to cause us to erupt in umbrage and defensiveness, for many white people, just generalizing about white people will cause great defensiveness. Um, so we're very fragile in, in that, in, in what we can withstand. The impact of our response to that is not fragile at all because it marshals behind it the weight of historical power, legal authority, and institutional control. It becomes a weaponized kind of defensiveness and hurt feelings and tears. And so it functions powerfully to, to block the challenge and to regain the equilibrium of the white position. So I see white fragility as the sociology of dominance, right? And I wanna be clear, it's not just defensiveness, right? You know, it's natural to feel defense, some defensiveness when uh, embarrassment, uh, defensiveness when you are called in on something, uh, especially that you didn't, uh, weren't aware that you were doing. Um, the key is, 
do you move through that defensiveness and are able to move into repair or do you use the defensiveness to dig in deeper refuse to engage and continue to protect a very insular limited worldview that's when it is white fragility again it's not weakness per se it's not even defensiveness per se, it's a powerful means of everyday white racial control. So this question comes up a lot, right? Well, okay, okay, but I, and I wanna know more about this, but, but how can I know or how can we know if they don't teach us? And I can remember this, definitely my own white fragility surfaced. Uh, when I first got into this field, um, I got hired to lead discussions on racism and turned to the people of color I was supposed to be working with and just said, okay, you know, here's the part where you teach me about racism. And their response was, oh, heck no, that's not our job. And I remember feeling so put out, like, well, how, how am I supposed to know if you don't teach us, right? Today, I very much understand this. First of all, we are not innocent. White people are not innocent in, uh, on, on racism. We might be ignorant, but it's not a benign ignorance. We, we have lots of information available to us on how we have uh, been conditioned into a uh, white superiority, uh, how we work to push away uh, awareness about racism. Uh, there are there are white people, or excuse me, there are people of color out there who are willing to teach us. They write books, they put on seminars, uh, they do presentations, and they get paid for their work and should be paid for their work, right? Um, but to just turn to anybody and say, okay, now teach me, is a very problematic move to make because most of the time we're, we don't actually listen Right. We're, we're asking them to be incredibly vulnerable when we're not reciprocating that vulnerability, right? And so often when people of color, you know, make themselves vulnerable, uh, share those tender hurts of racism, we sit back as white people and feel perfectly qualified to determine yeah, what we you know, what we will validate, but what, no, what we don't really agree with, right? And so it's just rife with potential harm for people of color, right? And, and let me just try to take everything that I have just laid out and put it together in, in, in a, an example that might make it clear. So I often move to gender in my work because from a very early age, I was aware that uh, sexism and patriarchy existed and that I was swimming against the current uh, in relation to them. That in other words, that I was um, a victim, if you will. Uh, I was marginalized based on sexism and patriarchy. And so I thought about it most of my life. I was in my 30s before I ever considered how I colluded with somebody else's oppression. So um, I'm going to go back to gender for just a moment for this particular example. So this is the House Freedom Caucus. This is a group in the U.S. Um, this is uh, probably the most, one of the most powerful committees in the entire country. That's Mike Pence, uh, the Vice President of the United States there in the middle of that table. And this is the best visual representation I have ever found for what it means to say uh, collective bias backed with legal authority and institutional control. This is the embodiment of institutional power. They are all cis 
gendered white men. They're all uh, conservative in this case. They are all likely to be multimillionaires, went to the finest schools and have been um, groomed their entire lives to be sitting at that table. Uh, and so I would imagine certainly women could look at that picture and feel uh, if you walked into that room as a woman, how visceral it would be for you. Uh, all that male dominance and power, um, all that kind of socialization into expecting and seeing it, uh, your rightful place to be in that room at that table. Um, I can only presume that they're not seeing anybody of value missing from the discussion, right? Um, and now imagine that you add one woman into that room for some token diversity and tell her that her job is to teach these men about uh, sexism. I mean, I can tell you as a woman, I would run as far as I could from, from uh, having to go into that room by myself and be the one who's supposed to teach them. And in no, no way would I assume that they would listen openly uh, and take in what I was teaching. I, I, I can only imagine that I would get a lot of resistance that would play out in, in many different ways. And now imagine you put 10 women in that room. You put 15 women in that room, but you've done nothing to address the consciousness of these men who have always sat at that table, who set the table up, and who, if we're being honest, it's up to whether a woman even gets to sit at that table. You put 10 women in there, but you do nothing to address their consciousness. You're putting 10 women into a hostile environment. And to the degree that they enact the norms of this group, they will escape some of, some of that uh, patriarchal harm, but they're still going to be dealing with constant sexism. If you can see that, if you can get a sense of it, you can ask yourself, well, what might be my version of that, right? Why, why might people of color, indigenous people say, it's not our job to teach you. For any woman who's listening right now who, who resonated with the example I just gave, now I want you to imagine that this is the room. And this group of women really needs an indigenous woman on their board to help them you know, see their racism. Does that sound good to any indigenous woman listening right now? To go into that room all by yourself and try to talk to these women about, about uh, racism, try to uh, teach them about racism? I'm hoping that white women watching right now can, can see that I can be in this room experiencing all kinds of sexism and I can be in this room perpetrating all kinds of racism on an isolated uh, indigenous woman in this room. Uh, that our shared womanhood, if you will, uh, does not trump the difference in our racial positions. In other words, there is no more a universal woman's experience than there is a universal human experience on the physical plane where we live in societies that are deeply separate and unequal by race. I'm not talking about a universal human experience up in the spiritual level. I'm talking about in the unequal societies we live in. Okay. So what are some of the underlying assumptions, right, that drive this this response of white fragility you know when you think back to the question i asked earlier uh, how often have you given a uh, it was a question i asked to uh indigenous people people of color 
how often have you given a white person feedback on their inevitable racist patterns and had that go well for you? And you see this list of common responses. In asking myself, what could be under the surface? What foundational assumptions could I be operating from that would cause me to respond that way uh, to feedback that could be seen as an incredible, precious, rare gift, uh, a gift of trust, a moment of risking harm to give me that feedback? Well, the only assumptions I could imagine that would drive such a harmful response to that feedback are, are the following. The idea that nice people cannot also act in racist ways. This idea that racism can only be conscious and intentional, so unaware good intentions cancels it out. This idea that as a white person, I will be the judge of whether racism has occurred. I, I find it kind of incredible based on our socialization that white people think we are the ones that are objective on racism and that people of color, uh, indigenous people uh, are biased and play the race card, please. Uh, my learning is finished. I know all I need to know. This is a really common claim of white progressives, right? I took that workshop. I, I've been in this environment. Uh, my learning is finished. I can tell you that I literally have a PhD in this topic and my learning will never be finished. Uh, this idea that white people who experience oppression or have suffered cannot also have racial privilege, right? This is why we will often make sure that everybody knows that we are a minority ourselves, right? We're also called uh, channel changing. Let's get racism off the table. Sometimes the way this looks in organizations is, oh, well, we have to make sure we address all these other oppressions too. So let's get every oppression on the table so that none are addressed in depth and certainly not racism. My race has no bearing on my perspective uh, on this matter, right? Again, this idea that white people are objective. I'm a unique individual, therefore nothing that you're talking about could apply to me. I'm qualified to determine whether indigenous people's experiences are legitimate. And if I don't understand what you're saying to me, then what you're saying to me is not legitimate. As a white person, I know the best way to challenge racism and you're doing it wrong. I have no accountability whatsoever to indigenous peoples, yet I'm confident that I'm free of racism. I have proximity to indigenous peoples, therefore I'm free of racism. I have no proximity to indigenous peoples, therefore I'm racially innocent. I don't know anything about this. I grew up in a small town, etc. And again, white people are objective on racism. Now see if you don't recognize that these are the unexamined and unacknowledged assumptions that so many of us who are white are operating from and that cause us to be so defensive uh, uh, when any of this is challenged. So what I would offer you is to seek to internalize a very different framework, a framework really of simple humility that might look something like this. Racism is a multi-layered hierarchical system infused in all aspects of society and nothing has exempted me from the racial hierarchy I live in. Keep in mind when I use the term racism, I am talking about white people's bias because it is backed by power. So I do not say everyone's just as racist as everyone else. I do not say they're just as racist as I am. I say they're just as biased as I am. 
I reserve the term racism to acknowledge institutional power. That changes my question to from if I am racist as a white person or if I've been shaped as a white person to how have I been shaped? It's a very different question. It opens up a very different set um, of inquiry. And if you understand racism as a system, then you know that the question is not if, but how. Thinking in terms of good people versus bad people is just not useful. Uh, white people are not objective on racism. I am not objective. Everyone has bias. Most is unconscious. Of course, I have unconscious bias. And racism is incredibly complex. I don't have to understand every aspect of it for it to be valid. In fact, odds are very high. I won't understand every aspect of it. White comfort maintains the racial status quo. Therefore, discomfort is necessary. It is not uh, a terrible breach in the social contract if white people feel uncomfortable in conversations about race. And white people are perfectly safe feeling uncomfortable about race. I must not confuse comfort with safety. I am safe in discussions of racism. When white people insist that we have to feel safe before we can have a conversation about racism, honestly, it perverts and trivializes the true direction of historical violence that we have and continue to perpetrate as a culture on peoples of color and indigenous peoples. My analysis must be intersectional, which means I cannot exempt myself because I experience another form of oppression. And it also must be accountable, which means I have to always ask myself, how do I know how well I'm doing? What kind of relationships do I have across race? And do we talk honestly and openly about these uh, dynamics? It's on me to continually educate myself and my learning is not finished. I bring my group's history with me. History does matter. I represent my group. I represent my group's history of harm. Uh, and I should not expect to be taken as a unique individual outside the history of my people. Feedback on white racism is incredibly difficult to give. So how I receive it is really not that relevant. I need to focus on the feedback, not the delivery. Indigenous people's distrust of white people. Okay, this one I gotta take my time on. Indigenous people's distrust of white people in our institutions, programs, and research is rational. It is rational that they do not trust us. It is smart of them not to trust us. We have to start looking at ourselves as needing to earn back trust, not demand it at face, because I know that I am different from every other white person you've ever met. No, I'm actually not. <laughs> uh, even my insistence that I am shows that I'm not. We need to earn trust uh, and not demand or expect it. Given socialization, it's more likely that I'm the one who doesn't understand the issue. And so, no, I don't need to explain it to you one more time. White people, we need to stop lecturing indigenous people and people of color on the answer to racism. Racism hurts indigenous people's 
365, and so interrupting it is more important than my feelings, ego, or self-image. Again, just notice it's simply a framework of humility, but it would radically transform um, the current uh, hierarchy. And I, I, I believe that if we could internalize this as white people, not only would our interpersonal relationships change, but so would our institutions, because we would see that they did. So a final note for all the white progressives listening Niceness is not anti-racism. Niceness will not get racism on the table, and it will not keep it on the table when everyone wants it off the table. Niceness in many ways functions as a kind of force field that will prevent you from getting racism on the table because there will be, there will be discomfort and conflict around getting racism on the table. And we need to build our capacity to endure that discomfort and that conflict and see it through. Uh, niceness is great. Please don't misunderstand me. Please. Niceness is great in the sense of I'm for niceness. I don't, I'm not for meanness. But niceness doesn't mean the absence of racism. And niceness does not mean anti-racism. Anti-racism takes strategic, intentional anti-racist action. So I will just close with some offerings of how white people might begin, or certainly please continue if we see ourselves as having already begun. We have to build the capacity to tolerate the discomfort associated with an honest appraisal of our internalized superiority. We have to acknowledge ourselves as, as racial beings with a particular and necessarily limited perspective on race and strive for humility in the face of that limitation. So listen openly with curiosity. Take your lead from indigenous peoples and people of color. Don't tell them how it's going to go. Uh, begin to understand people of color, indigenous peoples, racial realities through authentic relationships and interaction rather through, through the media or unequal relationships. And finally, take action to address your racism, the racism of other white people and our institutions. You know, the number one question when I give a talk that I get is, okay, 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 now what do I do? I find that actually a disingenuous question. I'm going to ask a question back to any white person who's sitting here right now thinking, what am I supposed to do or what do I do? And my question back to you is, how have you managed not to know? How have you managed to be a full functioning education, educated adult, probably in a, a position of leadership, and not know what to do about racism? That's on you. And it's 2019, right? The information's everywhere. Uh, and what would we do to find out more about anything we had the remotest interest in finding out more about? We would look it up. So look it up. Take that initiative. Uh, my website alone, robindangel.com, under the resources tab, is filled with lists of what, of what white people can do. I'm quite sure there are copious uh, pieces of guidance uh, written and uh, presented by indigenous peoples in the New Zealand context on, on what white people can or should not be doing. Um, and in a way, my question back is facetious, right? It's meant to be a challenge. How have you managed not to know? But if you sincerely uh, asked yourself that question, if you took out a piece of paper and you started to write a map, you would actually have your answer. 
you would have that guide, that map, uh, and nothing on that list would be easy or quick to resolve, but absolutely anything you wrote on your list of why you don't know would be addressable. So I just want to close by, by thanking you for listening and by acknowledging that while this journey for me as a white person is painful at times, it is also the most liberating, transformative journey I could ever be on. And when we change our question as white people, people from if I've been shaped by the racist society I live in to how have I been shaped by it, it's liberating and it's transformative and it's a beautiful, powerful journey to be on. You're listening to Hear Kōrero, a community research podcast.